Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The Athletic. Hello, Ed Straw here to introduce a bonus episode in your feed this week, the latest offering from our brand new podcast, The Race F1 Tech Show. It's hosted by myself and the inimitable Gary Anderson, the former technical director of Jordan and Jaguar, whose F1 career dates all the way back to 1973. What Gary doesn't know about F1 Tech isn't worth knowing, so if you're keen to learn more about how stuff works in the world's fastest and most technically advanced sports, this is the podcast for you. This week's episode features an exclusive interview with Julien Simon Chautamp, Kimi Raikkonen's former race engineer at Alfa Romeo. He discusses what it's like to work with Kimi, the art of race engineering, and the thorny issue of communications with a famously taciturn driver. If you enjoy the episode, please do like, follow or subscribe to the Tech Show's feed to make sure you never miss an episode. You can find it by searching for The Race F1 Tech Show in whatever app you're listening to this in. Now, over to uh, me with the episode. The Race F1 Tech Show, brought to you by Aramco. This week is all about those disembodied voices we hear calling the shots over the radio during a Grand Prix, the race engineers. But what do they do? How important is their relationship with the drivers? And how can they make their car and driver go quicker in the cut and thrust of a race weekend? We reveal all with the help of Kimi Raikkonen's former race engineer, Julian Simon Chauton. Hello, I'm Ed Straw. Welcome to the Race F1 Tech Show brought to you by Aramco. Joining me for my favourite time of the week to delve into F1's big tech topics is Gary Anderson, not only a former F1 technical director, but also a man with plenty of race engineering experience, which is appropriate given that's our topic for the interview later in the podcast. How's life, Gary? Life's good, yeah. Yeah, I um, enjoyed the, the, the race in Baku. It was... Uh it was quite nice to see basically a challenge for all the teams. I mean, I think Baku was a big challenge because of the high-speed nature of it, the low-speed nature of it, this porpoising and whatever. But uh, in the end, you know, reliability is a massive thing. Um, doesn't matter how quick you are as Ferrari are showing, you got to get to that checkered flag and, and really it didn't happen for them. And that's a massive points loss. So, uh, yes, they need to scratch their head very quickly. Yeah, the other thing that was particularly fun about Baku is it's always been a bit of a compromise circuit. Because of the new rules, the teams aren't quite there with their range of different trim packages and understanding that compromise, so it just made it that bit more interesting. But as always, we like to start off with a topic that's caught your eye from the world of F1 tech this week. So what are you going for? Well, it is really Ferrari's reliability. You know, um, it's one of those sort of things where they have a very quick car. Um, it's obviously, you know, a combination of 
of being able to qualify well and being able to race well. They have a quick car, but I'm not sure that they actually can run the car in its low enough downforce trim, keep that speed and be able to race well. Um, I mean, the Red Bull, for sure, they can do all of that. Uh, they've got straight line speed. Um, they can overtake in the race. So Red Bull are pretty happy if they're second or third quickest. But Ferrari, you know, they don't seem to be heading the, in the direction of trimming the car enough to be able to fight them off in, in, uh, uh, in competition, in the race competition. So it's a bit strange. Um, I'd have thought by now they'd realise that. But at the end of the day, you know, we never got to see the, 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 the real battle between Red Bull and, and Ferrari and, and uh, Baku because of the, the, uh, the reliability problems. And, you know, as I say, it doesn't matter how quick your car is, if you can't get the checkered flag, there's uh, no points for you. So they've really got to get on top of that. And that will, that will disrupt their, 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 their program for other stuff on the car because obviously, you know, you, with this sort of um, day and age of technology, you can only focus on a certain amount of stuff at any point in time. So developments for the chassis may actually end up slowing down a little bit um, in the effort to sort of identify the reliability problem. They've, they've had too many of them. Four cars that, that failed for whatever reason uh, in Baku were all Ferrari powered cars. Uh, so reason to believe that um, they've definitely got a, a fairly major problem in there somewhere. The big problem is if it's a variety of problems, it's even worse. You know, if it's one problem, you can focus on it and get on with it. But if it's a variety of problems, then it's a lot of things. Um, as I say, they, um, they said that Carlos Sainz's problem was a hydraulic failure. Uh, I'm not a big buyer into that, to be honest. Um, because when he went off on the radio, he seemed to say he had a break by wire failure. Now, maybe I sort of didn't hear that quite right, but I'm pretty sure that's what he said. And the noise when he was going off, the, the, uh, the rattling and clattering to me was was suspect of something breaking. I thought it might have been the, uh, the MG UK, which basically is the, the retardation during braking, the electric motor on the engine sort of charges up the battery pack while you're under braking. And I thought it could have been that that happened. And then the next thing was obviously Charles Leclerc was smoking merrily. Um, and I thought, oh, that could be the same thing because that's what happens basically if the MG UK sits in the integral part of the engine, if that goes wrong, you're going to end up with a, a very smoky piece of kit. So um, it may be two different problems. I would say, as I say, that's an even bigger problem with the Alfa Romeo uh, going out and the, the Haas of Kevin Magnussen going out. They might have four different problems altogether. So uh, that would be a real drama for them. Yeah, it's interesting. With the Joe Guan Yu retirement, Alfa Romeo put that down to a cooling problem, but I think they said hydraulic problem as well over the radio. They did say it was a Sauber problem rather than a Ferrari problem, but they're always very reticent if they're car problems. So just thinking what you were saying there about this, what you said there about the science thing, it could again be connected. We did also see a number of MG UK failures in Monaco. Haas and Alfa, I think, had three MG UK failures between them. So there's clear, clear problems there. But the thing that's concerning is Mattia Bonotto saying there's not a quick fix, indicating they don't seem to be completely on top of what the problem is. So that's really worrying, isn't it? Because the races are coming thick and fast, and the longer it takes for you to diagnose it, the, the bigger the knock-on effect. Yes, um, they're coming thick and fast, and, and the, the circuits are coming, you know, like Canada, like uh, like Silverstone. They're all high-engine-use circuits. They're all good, hard, high-RPM circuits where you're using the engine quite a lot and you're using the MG UK quite a lot because you need it to get 
to get off the corner and give you that initial acceleration. So it's a, it's circuits that needs that power is a is a great advantage. So you can't afford to sort of turn things down a bit, or you lose too much performance. So it's it's probably the wrong time for for these problems to arrive. If it was hungry or you're going to Monaco, you might just get away with turning it down a bit and not suffer too much. But um, you know, this is what this is what the challenge is basically. You know, we we look at two things. We look at Mercedes attempts to get rid of their bouncing and they're struggling to do it. And it's the same thing with the uh, you know reliability on the Ferrari. If if they if they don't get on top of it, the championship's going going away from them. Um, just exactly the same as it is for Mercedes for completely different reasons. But it shows that the whole package is more important than any one individual part of it. And you know Ferrari's individual part of it that, that makes them competitive in the season is the speed of the car. Um, if reliability of the power unit lets them down, still the championship's going out the window. So. You've got to get everything right to actually be successful. And how difficult is it when you've got a problem like this to diagnose it? I guess it's fairly easy to look at where the oil's fallen out of or what's got a hole in it, but actually the source of the failure and the reason that you're having that, that initial failure point, how hard can that be to find? And have you been in positions where you've been looking at things? I know you're not an engine specialist, but you did plenty of work with engines in your time as well. How difficult is it when you're trying to get to that exact problem? Well, you know, you enjoy just quite simply a good old blow up because you can sort of delve in there and see a load of the bits and see what you think happened first. And we had quite a few of them with, uh, with Stuart Grand Prix when we had the uh, the HB engine, the first of the smaller, I think it's the HB they called it, a very lightweight package that was just less than 100 kilograms for an engine. And it was a great little engine, to be honest. But the way they'd made the crank, the crank was um, a very lightweight crank and then they'd bolted on some balance weights on the crank and you know after about our third failure we were sitting in the in the motorhome one night looking at some of the bits and you could see that the these 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 balance weights were starting were cracking there was machining marks in this tungsten and there were there was a crack appearing from these machining marks and then suddenly it would fail so those were things that you could identify and basically taking those balance weights and you know polishing out the cracks um fixed the problem Whenever we had the Peugeot engine back in 1995 with Jordan, we had various failures there. But the thing that Peugeot did that was different was they they always protected it. Um, so they would use their sensors to protect the engine. So on many, many occasions, we had an electrical failure because the engine would switch off. But it wasn't an electrical failure. It was just because the, the valve pressure had gone or the, the oil pressure had gone or something. And then, you know, it detects the pressure's dropping. So they just switched the engine off. So you've never seen smoky blow-ups. Um, so I think it's better to be realistic, and that's where Leclerc's engine failure was a realistic failure. It was a pretty smoky device. You know, it was definitely a failure, um, whereas the other three were slightly hidden failures, to be honest. Um, so you look through all the bits and pieces and the data, and then you'll also look at, at uh, you know, your, your last batch of bits. Is there something in those engines that come from a a different batch or a different supplier or a, a different treatment or whatever because it's you know everything's working so hard sm smallest minuscule change in specification can so easily cause you grief so it's it's after a blow up it's hard to identify but if you the thing is you've got to you've got to sort of um recognize it yourself that there is a, a problem in there and you've got to then trace through every individual component thousands and thousands of them related to that failure to see to see where it could have been instigated. 
And it's always fascinating to see how much detail the study's going to. They'll go over every single part of that, all the data, endless photographs. It's always interesting. Sometimes if you speak to engine people, you'll be shown photos of all the past parts and you'll be shown the the kind of tiny fail points and that kind of thing they're trying to find. So interesting. But but yeah, but a big, big, big task. It is a big task. And, and you can relate it a bit, a bit like a plane accident, really, an airplane accident. You know, you have the black box on an airplane. Um, there's two of them, I think, but you have the same on a, on a Formula One car. You have everything's being recorded data-wise, so you can see, you know, usually see the data where something went wrong. But what is the thing that's hidden is what made that go wrong. So you know, again, with these people that put you know put planes back together again and try to analyze where the failure occurred or what happened, it's it's the same with an engine like that. Leclerc's engine inside of there will be like an airplane accident. There'll just be bits everywhere. And the bits that are broken aren't necessarily the bits that broke first. So you've really got to take the data, take your time, engineers sit down and look at it, and you've got a race coming next weekend. So you don't have much time. So it's all that, that compromise of just trying to do the best you can. And they may have to compromise performance slightly uh, in the short term to actually get reliability enough to score points. You can't keep on scoring no points. On a bad day, you've got to be scoring you know, 15 or 12 points or whatever it is for a third or a fourth, um, just to make sure your, your your total's going up. The minute, you know, Leclerc's gone from leading the championship to to third now in the championship, so it's, you know, it's, a, it's going to be a battle. Yeah, and I imagine there'll be lots of exchanges going on with the FIA as Ferrari seeks some dispensations to make reliability fixes to the frozen spec engine. So, yeah, there'll be plenty to follow on that story. Let's move on to our main topic for the week, Gary, the role of the race engine in. And that's something you've done plenty of over the years. It's a job I always regard as one of the key ones in the team. It's a a bit of a magical relationship between the driver and race engineer. Is that the case on the inside? Um, Yes, it is. I mean, you need that relationship. Um, I've had both sides of the fence um, relationship-wise. I've talked about it with um, the Jordan 191 with uh, Andrea de Cesaris in Barcelona when he he said some stuff in, during a practice session when it got red flagged that I thought was being a bit stupid. And uh, as I say, the session was red flagged, so he got out of the car and I sort of had it out with him and pinned him to the garage wall to, to explain the facts of life to him. Um, that's one way to be a race engineer. Is that called a debrief in the early 90s? <laughs> no, he still had his briefs on at the time, actually. But, uh, no, uh, you know, it, it was just, I, I took it personally. I suppose I shouldn't have done it at that point in time. I should have been thicker skinned, but I wasn't. Um, and uh, and then we had the relationship like I had with Rubens Barrichello, who you know he treated me like his second father, and uh, it was a great relationship. Uh, you know, it was one of those times whenever the race engineer and the driver, they were a, a pair, went together. So going out for dinner or something was very important. You know, just having a chat about life, uh, because there's so much you can learn about people and their, and their attitudes towards it. And Rubens was a fantastic driver, but. At that point in time, data was one thing, but the driver led the show. And you, you know, as an engineer, you'd be chatting to the driver on the in-lap about what the car was doing, what the balance was like and whatever. And by the time we'd park Rubens' car in the garage, if we didn't have a, a, a solution, if I didn't have a solution to his problem or a direction to go with the setup, then I felt inadequate because that's what you should be doing. So... Um, now it's all about the park up, the data comes. So it's a very, very different discipline. Some people are very good at that now. Some people aren't. Um, 
But data can only take you so far. You've got to satisfy the driver, and that's the relationship that the engineer needs to have. And there's some fantastic guys out there now doing doing a great job at it, but it's very, very different from when I did it. Yeah, do you think you'd enjoy race engineering in modern Formula One? Does it still feel like the same job, or has it become much more complicated? I know we'll get onto this with our guests shortly, but what, what's your feeling on that? I think it's become much more complicated and much more, instead of shooting from the hip and, and feeling, you know, feeling that you're in the car. I mean, that's the way I've always done it. I've got the driver to tell me what's going on and I've sort of tried to analyse in my mind what that feels like in the car. I, I did drive a little bit years ago, so you you can relate that stuff to it. And taking a typical example, you know, of a small thing, the driver maybe complains about the brake pedal being a little bit long or a little bit, you know, hard or whatever, or he just, you know, it's not just where he thinks it should be. How important that is and how that needs to get sorted by the race engineer understanding that it's critically important that the drivers, you know, knows where everything is in the car. But race engineering wise, as I say, you, you sort of, my approach to it was make yourself feel as though you're driving the car. Whenever he's talking about this understeer through turn three, you're, you're feeling it. You're feeling it in your gut and you're thinking about the car in that, in that situation, in the middle of that corner, you're thinking about the car, you know, well, it'll, it will have rolled, it will have loaded up the tires. So if we change the roll bars, it will be better, uh, you know, to stiffen the rear roll bar up or whatever, but it'll hurt the traction a little bit. So you get these things in your mind, whereas nowadays I don't think I would enjoy it because you go off and look at a computer screen for, you know, five minutes, ten minutes, or you have somebody else looking at the computer screen doing your data analysis and telling you all the, you know, the rear of the car's rolling that point one of a degree more than it should do. So if you get that sorted, it'll be right. And that's, you know, it's a different deal, a different, completely different discipline now than, than it used to be whenever it was all about, you know, gut feeling, uh, good, solid sort of decision-making and, and confidence-inspiring. You have to give the driver confidence. That's a big thing about being a race engineer. You have to give the driver confidence that what you're doing is going to address his problem. We're very fortunate to be joined on this podcast by Julien Simon Chautemp. Julien has a huge amount of experience in Formula One and was most recently Kimi Raikkonen's race engineer at Alfa Romeo from 2019 to 2021. Julien's F1 experience stretches back a decade and a half. He spent years working closely with drivers, first as performance engineer for Jarno Trulli at Toyota and Lotus Racing, then Vitaly Petrov, Kimi Raikkonen and Pastor Maldonado at the Endstone Lotus team. He went on to work as a race engineer with Romain Grosjean, Julian Palmer, and then, after joining Sauber, Marcus Ericsson, and most recently, Kimi Raikkonen. He's now set up JSC7 Engineering, which offers consulting services using his F1 expertise. That includes branching out into media work, notably with France's Canal+. You can head to jscengineering.com to find out more. So it's over to Gary for his fascinating conversation with Julien Simon Chautemp. So, Julian, um, many years' experience in, uh, in Formula One in, in various different levels, but uh, it's a long time since I put a headset on and tried to engineer a car. Could you, could you sort of tell us the, the, the difference in, in how Formula One is now? Because we get performance engineers, we get race engineers, and it really has become quite a, a huge part of the team. Yeah, well, basically, even uh, since I started back in 2008, uh, the let's say the role of... Uh, slightly evolved or slightly changed and uh, the main thing 
that I found that has changed compared to, to, to past years. Obviously, the amount of people involved in the decision-making progress, the, 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 the job itself is very similar. And uh, I'm sure, Gary, you will, uh, you will agree with that compared to, to your time as well. Uh, it's just the amount of people, the amount of uh, uh, stuff you have to do, the amount of report, the amount of uh, people involved in uh, each decision process that has been different. But uh, ultimately, the, the role of the race engineer is still the same: is to make the is to make the car faster and to communicate with all the engineers, the mechanic, and uh, as a goal to to to, to perform and to, to 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 get the car as fast as you can. So they, you know, we often see the the race engineer himself <clears throat> um, talking with the driver, but behind that there is a lot of people, and one of them, you know, we, we keep hearing about say is the the performance engineer. How how does the relationship between those two work? Is it, is it an extension of the of the race engineer? Just ah, it's very important. He is the is the right arm of the of the race engineer. Let's say he's the, he's the one in charge of the all the simulation, all the setup, and uh, also deeply involved in uh, data analysis and. Uh, and as well as talking to the driver, he's one of the only people in the team, together with the race engineer, who can interact with the driver uh, to help his performance. So he's a very uh, uh, fundamental part of uh, how Formula One team are, are working uh, these days. But not only Formula One. Even if you see lower series like F2, F3, even F4, uh, there is still a performance. There is already a performance engineer at this level, uh, which wasn't existing at uh, in my days, uh, when I started in Formula 3, Formula Renault, uh, you had like the figure of the race engineer that was also the performance engineer. So that was doing that analysis, uh, downloading the data, but also talking to the driver. When now, even that lower series team has structured much more like Formula 1, uh, with the performance engineer really focused on uh, downloading the data, making sure all the sensors are working, and uh, analyzing the video, and uh, and reporting to the race engineer how to improve the, the setup of the car. So these two are working really in parallel and very important. So really, you know, the, the lower formula is not only about training drivers, it's about training race engineers and performance engineers and bringing them up to the level that Formula One needs. Absolutely, absolutely. And uh, this is a bit what I'm do doing. Uh, what this is a big part of what I'm doing now with my new company. And uh, uh, I'm basically setting up a, a Formula Four team from scratch. Uh, with a French team called, uh, called Saint-Eloc, and it's very interesting because uh, this is where I started 20 years ago in Formula Renault, and now I'm back there, but plus all the knowledge I have from now. So uh, it's a big role involving uh, hiring the engineer, hiring the people, and putting in place all the procedures they need to, to, to work on to achieve the, the, the best level possible. So uh, you're talking about job list, uh, setup procedure, uh, uh, how to check the sensors, how to check the data, and uh, it's, it's, it's a big thing, but it's very interesting. Well, with the, over a race weekend, we often you know we see the the race engineer talking to the driver, but there's a lot more goes into the performance of a race weekend before you even get to the track. How much how much simulation and analysis would you do from past experience of a race track before you get to it again with the setup? Well, it's huge, it's huge. So uh, you're completely right, Gary. It's a huge part of the, the preparation of the, the race event. All the team are doing what they call pre-events. So they run thousands of simulation in terms of uh, rear radar sweep, uh, rear wing sweep, uh, all this kind of information, which will give the team the best uh, setup compared to their knowledge, uh, especially in terms of uh, rear radar positioning, rear wing positioning, uh, with the latest aero map, the latest upgrade they have. So team arrive at the track already knowing 
just needing to do the, the fine tuning. You know what I mean? The, the base setup, the, the big part of the setup is already done. And then you just adapt the track in terms of uh, track condition, which is always difficult to, to simulate. Uh, so, so, so the time is so short at the tracks so that you, you you have to arrive with a setup already in the ballpark. Yeah, we, we often see, you know, between, a let's say, a Friday and a Saturday, um, a, a good step in performance from, from some teams, some drivers. How much of that is done away from the track simulation back at the base during the during the race weekend? Does that happen a lot now? Yes, it does. Obviously, the, the I would say, especially on the new track, there is a huge part of um, improvement from the driver, especially because he keep improving the braking point, and keep improving the line. So the, the the potential of improving the lifetime is huge on the driver side. Let's say, uh, but even though it's very important to ride with. Uh, with a setup, and we've seen this year in a couple of occasions, especially with a new car, people arrive with a car absolutely out of the window. And when you start like this, it's really, really difficult over the course of the weekend to to to, to steer it back because at the end you have only the Friday, and then that's it basically. So, so you're sort of, you're really sort of stuck with the uh, the car performance that you've got, and you just try and get the best out of it for a given weekend if you if you if you do arrive like that. Exactly, exactly. Obviously, bigger team like uh, Red Bull or Mercedes, they can run in parallel uh, a simulator with um, a test driver and they can try, uh, actually, the setup they try at the track in parallel at the simulator at the base. And um, so that helps a lot, obviously, to to, to improve the, the, the setup. But uh, yeah, it's all about correlation and correlating that, uh, you know, full well, Gary, it's all about uh, making sure that the uh, the, the improvement you bring to the track are correlating with the simulation. And then you, you that's what all engineers are doing. They spend their time correlating the data from the wind tunnel, from the simulation to what they have at the track and um, making sure it, it works well all together. The, the big topic this year has obviously been this porpoising that they, the ground effect cars have been suffering or most of the ground effect cars have been suffering. But uh, they've all said, the teams have all said it's very, very difficult to simulate it uh, away from the track. So how do you go about uh, doing any performance um, simulations, I suppose, if you can't really um, simulate the porpoising? Because obviously the, the cars want to run low to the ground to produce the downforce, so the, the simulation would probably lead you that way. I think we have to hold back a bit about this story of the, the porpoising. And, uh, and for sure, Gary, you, you were working on a ground effect car way before me, and <laughs> you're probably more experienced than me on that. But uh, people have to understand that in the wind tunnel, the the chassis, the model is fixed actually. So the wheels are separate from the model. The wheels are turning on the, on the belts, obviously, but the chassis itself is uh, is fixed basically. So you can change, obviously, you change the rider, you change things, but it doesn't have any oscillation simply because it's rolled by a big mast on top of the roll loop. And the only way the team would have to to simulate uh, the purposing would be to have like two masts, like two, one at the front, one at the rear. And to induce like a low frequency uh, movement on, on that, but that team are not doing that, and that's the reason why they didn't uh, saw that. They saw in the preliminary, preliminary let's say, uh, test of the new car, they saw some instability and loss of downforce at very low ride height, which is where the car are running. But the reason why nobody could um, uh, plan it is simply because the, the model is fixed in the wind tunnel, and they, they could not plan for this. Uh, is a suction and lack of downforce when the car is running very low. But we, we can see that, like, for example, Red Bull have got themselves a decent package. We don't really see 
porpoising of any great level, whereas the Mercedes, it's uh, started the season very, very poorly. And, you know, there are two teams that should be at the same level. So if one can understand it, you would think the other should be able to understand it to some level. You would, yeah, <laughs> but evidently not. <laughs> so if you, um, yeah, as far as, you know, the car specification, as car design is concerned, I suppose, for, let, let's say, next year, how are you deeply involved with the race engineer being in directing what he thinks the car needs to achieve at the track from a from an engineering point of view obviously you get a good understanding of how the car performs and the direction you're always going are you looking for front end grip are you looking for traction constantly do you influence the design of next year's car well uh let's say the, the race engineer usually is focused on the, on the current car let's say obviously after each event you do report and you inform the design office of uh, okay the car is doing that we try to change that it doesn't work so we need the more range on the dumping or more or aero balance shaping or all these kind of things. So obviously, we keep after each event and even during the event, we keep informing the, the factory of uh, what the car is doing in terms of setup and the direction. Uh, but it's more like a mid to long term, you know what I mean? And uh, obviously, if we want, if a driver, uh, Kimi was really good at that, for example, at uh, uh, asking a different arrow balance shape between the entry or the exit of the corner. Yes, that's things you can uh, you can uh, give this information immediately to the aero department and they can work uh, on improving this characteristic, let's say. But uh, yes, we, we are involved. You, you mentioned Kimi there. Obviously, you had a, a pretty good relationship with him during your, your time. Um, he was uh, one of the ones that I think uh, everybody was amazed at as a, as a driver in the way he, he, he treated it. He didn't seem to be somebody who wanted to put in a massive effort. He loved driving the car. He loved going fast. But behind the scenes, it didn't appear like it put in a massive effort. Did he actually, did he actually contribute a lot away from, the, away from the racetrack? Huge, hugely. Because, yeah, obviously, we all know Kimi didn't like all the media and marketing. However, he was very interested in all the engineering part of the car. And because ultimately wanted to go as fast as, uh, as possible. So he understood very early that uh, his best friend was a race engineer, basically, because obviously you need to have a good relationship with him. But once that's done, uh, that was the guy, uh, in this case, that was me, that could help him to improve the car. And he was very, very, very interested in uh, all the engineering aspect. I remember him calling me the weekend saying, oh, yeah, we've done that on the onshore bar, on the aero balance, we need to push to have that. So... He was really someone until the end who was pushing to to improve the car development and to 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 get what he wanted basically. And, and away from the track, he would call you and, and talk about things like that because I've always um, felt that the race engineer and the and the driver, it was always and, and your driver, it was always good to sort of even just go out for a meal together away from the racetrack to sort of understand each other better a little bit, I suppose. And I was found like with Rubens Barrichello when I was engineering him, we had a very good. Uh, relationship and it was it was something that was very important because you, you 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 know when you're under pressure you don't necessarily say the things that you think you're going to say so it's it has to be out of that pressure zone and you pick up a lot more it is fundamental because you i mean kimi is quite famous for his rant over the radio but he was never really personal or directed at, at me he was more reaction to the global frustration but it's very important uh, and i know during this time in ferrari he had some tricky situation with some of the engineers you work with. And I'll give you an example. When he's in the, on the pit wall during the race, we're talking about different strategies, these kind of things. And then, and I could feel the way Kimi was talking, although even the way he was driving, 
that some information were not good to pass to him and some were good, some relevant. And that's all about uh, relationship between the driver and and the an engineer. You know, sometimes I was being told on the pit, oh, you have to tell him that. And because and I say, no, I'm not going to tell him that because he's not going to react uh, well to this information. You know what I mean? So that was my part of uh, filtering uh, all that to make sure uh, he was getting the information he wanted. You know what I mean? Yes, it's, uh, it's very important that you recognize that, though. Um, again, from the race engineering point of view, we often hear on the radio um, the, the, the engineer advising the driver to maybe change the brake balance or the, the differential or whatever, you know, different setups that he can change on the steering wheel. Where does that where does that sort of information come from? Is that data driven? Because back in my time, you know, 20, 20 odd years ago, it was the driver. Basically, the driver drove the setup changes. He would tell you what's going on. Then between the two of you, you come up with something. But now, there, now there's much more to it. Uh, again, your question is quite. Um, there is few parts on that. So first of all, Kimi is still a driver who drive a bit like a a bit the the old days, and he could he, he was unbelievable. It was rare that we had to advise him on changing a brake mapping shape and differential because he was doing on his own. You know what I mean? He knew the mapping were, that were available on the steering wheel. He really knew what were the tools he had. And it was very rare I had to tell him, ah, oh, you should do that, change that, change that, because that's what we could see in the telemetry. And uh, we could advise him on that. However, you take another driver like uh, Joby Nazi, for example, Antonio, you had to tell him, Listen, you have inside wheel speed in this corner, so we should do that with the D. For here, you have front wheel locking, you should change the brake map shaping. So it's very, you have to tailor it to your driver, you know what I mean? And Kimi, most of the time, that would make me laugh is that he was changing. I was talking to my performance engineer, he was telling me, for example, to change an engine setting, right? And I was about to, to go into the channel, and he was changing on his own already, you know what I mean? So it was quite impressive on how uh, he could uh, understand what he needed to improve the car and to change the, the setting of the car on his own, basically. Uh, having said that, he happened several times that, yeah, obviously with the amount, we had like 250 sensors on the car, thousands and thousands of mass channels uh, they reviving from this uh, sensor. And yeah, we could see quite accurately what was the, the car balance doing and uh, it was relatively easy to advise them on the direction or another. And again, you'll, you'll get some drivers who um, they just can't sort of drive a car that hasn't got the balance they like. I mean, Kimmy, for example, as far as we know from the outside, he just didn't like understeer. He didn't mind the rear of the car being a little bit nervous, but he didn't like understeer. Whereas other drivers like Jensen Button, you know, never didn't like oversteer at all. He had to have a little bit of understeer. Um, how do you how do you sort of work with that as an engineer? Well, uh, you're completely right. Kimi is someone who hated understeer. He could not drive a car with a with front washout and a terminal understeer. So he always had the car uh, a bit, uh, let's say, uh, neutral uh, oversteering on uh, on turning up up to a certain point. And I'm convinced a fast car, especially in F1 these days, is a car on the neutral side. Uh, if you have too much understeer, you can't drive it uh, fast. Um, however, this has also an influence, you know, there's a lot of parameters like a tire degradation. If you set up the car too much on the oversteer side, then you start to degrade too much of the tire. So there is a kind of a snowball effect. It's always a balance between what the driver wants and what the tires are doing and how far you want to bring the tires uh, down the road during the race. You know what I mean? So 
uh, yeah, you adapt to the situation, to what the driver uh, do, what your car can do, and what the tires need to be doing during a race, basically. You're listening to the Race F1 Tech Show, brought to you by Aramco. Aramco continuously push the limits of engineering excellence. As the global energy partner of F1, they drive a shared vision to real-world innovation that aims to lower emissions, enhance performance and accelerate human potential. Aramco, powered by HAL. You, the, uh, you just come on to tyres there. Um, obviously, we, we hear a lot about tyres, tyre degradation, the driver can't push. I mean, how, how relatively how bad are they from back in the days whenever uh, before Pirelli? Um, you know, is there a problem with the tyres or is it just the fact that there's always going to be a problem with tyres because of the, the black bit that connects the car to the road? I think the tyres is probably the most complicated part on the, on, the, on, the, on the car, let's say, because one day you say, oh yeah, I'm on top of it, I understand, and the next race you say you have the same temperature target, you have the same temperature balance target, and then it doesn't work at all. So uh, these days you have to understand is relatively limited what we can do because back in the days, uh, especially I remember with the Bridgestone, you could choose your tire pressure, you could choose the blanket temperature, we had like remitting, we had all these kind of things. But now Pirelli basically tell you a minimum pressure you can run, uh, which is the pressure you have basically because everybody runs at the minimum. They even tell you the, the blanket temperature that you can run, which is even lower this year compared to last year. So uh, the, 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 this was a huge part of the setting up of the car, which are now taken away from the race engineering part because basically Pirelli, Pirelli tells you to what you have to run. After to answer your question, are they bad tires or no? I think it will always be in a black box. Very difficult to understand despite all the sensors in F1 we have. And um, simply because it's a non-linear, uh, they have non-linear characteristics, basically, which involve a lot with temperature, roughness of the track, uh, driving style. So that's very, very difficult to to have a very good understanding on the tires. And the, and the change from the 13-inch rims to the, this year's 18-inch rims, um, how do you how do you view, view that? Was that is that a a necessity or is it just a luxury because most road cars have got bigger rims these days so it's an advertising campaign on the personal point of view they had to oh, oh, go away from the certain inches is not relevant at all even the i mean you take uh, any car now they're on 19 inch or even 20 or even higher i mean 13 inches something from the past so they had to move to something more relevant to road car so uh, the tires are higher they're heavier or the, the shoulder is lower so the, the tire itself is, uh, is stiffer but it remains uh, apparently the compound itself is not that different from the from uh, last year. So just uh, you have an operating window slightly different to 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 what it was uh, the previous year, but fundamentally it's not that different. Let's say. And as far as the car setup would be concerned, from the thirteen-inch rims to the eighteen-inch, massive changes or just a little bit? Uh, it was quite a lot of change in terms of obviously the tire is much heavier. Is stiffer, so you have to change. Um, they removed the inerter this year in terms of uh, dumping, so there's quite a lot of things that uh, you have to change in terms of. Uh, there was quite a lot of work done on the seven post rig, on the shaker rig over the winter to try to adapt the, the vertical uh, stiffness of the tires compared to last year, but that's something that team are on top of it, and uh, yeah, it's not that much of a big deal, let's say. And the, the seven post rig, the, the shaker rig, is that? still get a lot of use or has people been able to model it now much better well 
they do use something they call a virtual uh, shaker rig uh, these days, but uh, I mean, there is nothing like having a, a proper rig where you can measure the frequency on the car and uh, measuring the contact patch load vibration and uh, measuring what your body control is doing on the shaker rig. So that's a very, very valuable information. Obviously, these days in F1, you don't change setting on the on the dumping. You are basically a dumper without any adjustment possible. So if you want to change the, the dumping of a, of a dumper, you have to change the unit itself. But it's not something people are fine-tuning at the track. You know, it's something you do um, back in the factory. You have your best dumping configuration, and then that's what you have on the car, just because they are very small. And uh, in terms of packaging, it's important that, um, that that's the way they are, basically. So, so you, uh, through your career, you had two other drivers that you um, engineered, really. Quite a few drivers, but two main drivers. Marcus Ericsson, he's just, uh, he's just won the Indy 500. Um, fantastic drive. I, I like IndyCar racing. I was involved quite a few years ago. What do you think of Marcus? And did you ever expect him to win the Indy 500? Um, well, I called him straight after. You uh, think he was still in the car and I tried to call him. So I'm so happy for him because Marcus was, I worked two years with him in Sauber. And we always, he was something, someone coming to my house, you know, meeting the kids, meeting the, the my wife. And so we had a very strong relationship together. And uh, he always been a very hard worker and always been, uh, he never been rewarded from his, um, from his hard work. And I was so happy when he won this, probably one of the biggest races in, uh, in the world, you know, for him. He's, uh, he, he's just a reward for all these uh, years of hard work. And the other one that didn't quite make it at Indy 500, Roman Grosjean. He's, uh, you obviously spent a bit of time with him as well. What's the difference in those two? I mean, they're, they're both out there doing Indy now. Ah, uh, but a completely different character. Roma is a very, very talented as well, very raw talent, uh, much more Latin in terms of his, uh, his uh, personality, much more explosive in terms of, uh, especially I remember the days when we had the, the Renault engine, if you remember in 14, the first years of, the, of this new power unit, which was really difficult in terms of reliability. We had some uh, seriously bad moment at the track, and then difficult to understand how an engine can break down uh, uh, that easily. But that was the beginning, and now Renault has a very strong power unit and are much better. But yeah, to go back to Romain, very talented, very raw talent, and um, yeah, I will see him in Canada. Actually, next week I'm going to Canada for Canal Plus. Uh, to to so he will be here as well. So I will see him. Um, I will see him there. And. This year, obviously, you know the, the regulations have changed dramatically. What do we we see? Very different concepts in a way from the the Mercedes to the Red Bull to the Ferrari. Visually, they look differently, different. But you know the reality of it is they're all doing very much the same job. Um, what where, what would you follow? What do you think is good? What what do you see as being the the uh, the best package? Uh, well, when I saw the Mercedes, I was really impressed the first time, especially the way they had they interpreted the rules you know with the crash the side crash structure which actually everybody making a big fuss about there are no side for the philosophy what impressed me the the, the the most is that this side crush this side crash structure that usually is embedded into the side pod now is out of the side pod and actually use a loophole of the the regulation to use this side pod as a complete new arrow shape uh, um, concept, which for me is very, very interesting. They clearly struggle to, to, to make this package work. I do believe still there is a lot of potential on it. But uh, to go back to your initial question, I think Red Bull is the Red Bull and probably Ferrari are the most impressive uh, 
complete package at the moment and, um, and they are at the front. So you see the render cut, you see the, especially at the rear, uh, the way the floor connects to the rear brake duct is, is very impressive how they, uh, they, they managed to get this, uh, this package working. So. Yeah, sometimes I find that you can uh, you come up with a good idea. Well, you come up with an idea that's different and you spend all your, put all your effort into making it work. Um, do you think Mercedes could be guilty of that as opposed to taking the, the, the overall, the big picture? Yeah, well, uh, they tried something new, it didn't work, so it would be up to them to see if they switch concept or they keep... I mean, the, the regulation, I think, will be quite stable over the years, so what you learn this year, you can carry it over the next year, so they can still improve. The big problem they have is a budget cap, which limit them uh, a lot in uh, the amount of uh, updates and the grade they can bring to the track, so that that's a big limitation for these big teams. So finally, with your uh, with your new company, where do you want to take that? Are you going to be uh, the eleventh or twelfth Formula One team in three or four years' time? No, absolutely not. No, no, you know, been fifteen years now. No, no. What I want to do, I have two main customers now, which are Canal Plus, and I'm doing some uh, take work with them, which is really interesting. So, uh, trying to explain in a simple way the the, the, the complex what's happening in F1. And I really enjoy that. I will be in Canada with them for the first time at the track. Uh, and my second thing is um, I have various projects, but one of my big projects is to help this, uh, this um, team in France that was quite well known in GT World. And they launched a new uh, category in Formula 4, a new single seater. And I'm in charge of everything, basically, from hiring people to put in place a procedure. So it's fascinating because you, you, you have very few months to put everything in place. And yeah, people will say, oh, is only Formula 4, but then the idea would be to go into F3, F2, in the, and then once you have the, the procedure in place, you know, the setup procedure, all the job list, uh, the way of working, the simulation, we are doing very, very interesting work, which I think at this level, very few teams are doing, and I hope we can show on the track that um, that we can perform, so it's very interesting. Plus, I'm doing other things with software company, uh, helping them improve their their. They are, they are, uh, with my knowledge of F1. So you can see I'm doing a lot of very different things, which I could not do when I was in F1, obviously, and all using my knowledge and know-how, but it's very, very interesting and fascinating uh, to apply this know-how and this knowledge from uh, what I've learned in F1 to other categories or even, even not motorsport. You see, for example, Canal Plus is a good example, or to help other software company to, to come into this world so it's, it's really interesting and I'm really enjoying it. So. Okay, Julian, well, thanks for your time and uh, good luck with the new company and hopefully it all works out for you. Thank you very much, Gary. If you're listening to this podcast, you must recognise the value of asking questions. At Aramco, answering questions helps them engineer a better future. So if you'd like to know how something works in F1, we'd love for you to send us a question, and if you're lucky, we might answer it on a future episode. You could record a voice note on your phone and send it to podcasts at therace.com, podcasts at therace.com, and don't forget the hyphen, and also tell us who you are if you record a voice note. We've got a question that was sent by email, from Paul Semnocker, which is related to the porpoising we've referenced briefly previously in this podcast. The question is, if the engineers can't fix the porpoising, why can't they make a suspension seat for the drivers? So suggesting there's some way to absorb the energy for for the drivers. A a good way of looking at the problem in a different way, but is it feasible? 
Well, uh, Paul, I think you know your suggestion is 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 possible. Uh, you need to start back at the basics, I suppose. You know, whenever you look at these cars, they're we're, they're breaking at something like five, six G, um, cornering at you know four G, three G, you know, quite high loads. So first of all, you need a seat that will transmit the car's feelings into the driver's bum because that's how he feels the car through his shoulders and through his bum and through the weight of the steering wheel is the main feedback for the driver. So if you have a seat in there that's got movement built into it, it will it'll dilute that that instantaneous feeling that the driver gets. And you know, whenever you talk about these cars and corners, they're they're so fast. They just turn in and, and you're you know through the corner so quickly that that instantaneous feeling is very, very important. That doesn't say you couldn't have something that vertically had a little bit of compliance in it. But if you again if you look at the driver when they're braking, you can see them submerge in the car that little bit, just as the you know braking forces in the body. If the seat belts aren't as as tight as some drivers like it, um, then it submerges in, in the, the driver submerges in the car. Uh, so it's 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 it would be very difficult to do, not impossible by any means. Obviously, the seat belts would have to go on to that sprung part of the car to keep the driver in that shell, and that shell would have to be retained to. A, another shell or some type of a mechanism. But again, not impossible. But I think it's always better to sort of try to react to the real problem as opposed to generate something else that will create some other problem on the way. Um, so the porpoising is the thing. And, you know, we, we, well, we talk about porpoising. There's two, two things popping up here now. There's porpoising and there's bouncing. Um, and they are actually quite different, although one of them can instigate the other. Um, I think what we've got with Ferrari, and we see it moving, that is porpoising. I mean, that's quite a low-frequency bouncing that they get. Um, and that's one of the reasons why I think Leclerc's able to handle it, because he has confidence in his talent to actually react to a situation. And Carlos Sainz sometimes struggles a little bit with it. But their bouncing in my book is at the frequency that the aerodynamics would work underneath the car. When we get a little bit of a stall, you lose a bit of downforce in the underfloor, and you, uh, the car releases and comes up, and then it gets sucked back down again. And one of the reasons Ferrari run, I would say, classify it as more wing, and we keep saying about their more wing situation, the more drag, is that the wings aren't suspect to to, uh, to porpoising. So in other words, you know, there's two bits of the car, the front wing and the rear wing, that develop downforce, and then there's the underfloor that develop downforce. The bigger the percentage of wing downforce you generate on your car, the less the less change there is because of porpoising. The bigger the percentage of downforce you create from underneath the floor of the car, the more chance there is of porpoising taking place. So you've just the balance and act between what you produce with the wings and the balance and act what you produce from the underfloor gives you a car that creates X amount of downforce, but from a different uh, from a different part of the car. Red Bull seem to have got it in control. Their their underfloor their underfloor looks more complicated than than others. Um, so I think they manage their aerodynamic stall very, very well. Um, and they're able to run the car with low, low rear wing levels and, and high, high top speeds. So those are two examples of two different ways of going about it. And I think Mercedes are caught out the other way. They think, they believe that their underfloor and zero side pod combination is mega as far as producing downforce is concerned. And I can't criticize, I can't argue with that really. They, they're the ones with the numbers. Um, but if they are, for example, producing 70% of their downforce in the underfloor, then they got 70% of 
more chance of porpoising. You know, Ferrari are producing 50% from their underfloor, they get a 50% chance of porpoising. So I think Mercedes have gone down the, a very strange route. They've got an underflow that's producing lots and lots of downforce, theoretically, but they can't manage it because it's too, too, too much. So they make the car solid, um, and that sets up you know, the bouncing because the, basically the, the car always puts its load through the tires, so the car will be bouncing on the tires as opposed to through the suspension, which you can manage by the damping arrangements in it. Um, so they've, they've theoretically got a lot of downforce, but they can't use it because the car starts bouncing, hitting the ground, and because of that, then you also get porpoising. So they've got themselves into this thing where they, they want that downforce at low speed, um, which means that they need to run the car low, and because they need to run the car low, they need to run the car stiff. It's just a spiral to nowhere, really, I think. So they've got to back themselves out of it a little bit and find some solution to reducing the underbody downforce, um, controlling the, the, the car movement better on the damping, um, run the car a little bit softer, and then I think they can fix it because they are the they are the ones that are the highlight to this problem. Other people have it, but they are the ones that highlight this problem. So why should the other teams agree to putting in a sprung seat into the cars? You know, whenever it's one team that really has got that problem. And and again, you know, the, F, the FIA within the black box in the car there is um, an accelerometer, so it measures vertical, lateral, longitudinal G. There is, and I think it's in the earpiece of the driver. Um, an accelerometer so that in an impact they know the G levels he's gone through so they can look at all those cars and they can say oh yeah the Mercedes is you know vertically it's got you know, 10 G inputs or whatever and the, and the, and the uh, Ferrari's only got 3 G inputs or whatever uh, so they can look at that data it's not just being um, driver critical they can actually look at real data and say this is this is a problem so um, and there's only one team got it, or there's two teams got it, or all the teams have got it. Just live with it. So there's, you know, there's lots of ways, lots to go before we actually end up seeing a regulation change or introducing something like a sprung seat. I believe. Yeah, there's been a, a lot of resistance to to making the change. If if you were in Mercedes' position, would you be doing what Christian Horner suggested they're doing and telling the drivers to talk about it and play it up as much as they possibly can? You know, there's no doubt that it is uncomfortable for the drivers, but. Usually drivers would hide that sort of thing, wouldn't they? But they're, but they're, they're making sure it's, it's right out there in the open. Yeah, I mean, they are obviously, and, and you hear that so much nowadays with the radio calls from the driver about somebody, you know, blocking them or cutting them up. It's all about that now. It's all about putting it out in the open. You know, make it public you're, what you've, you feel um, and then see if the FIA will do something about it. So, yes, I, I do agree with Christian Horner that at this point in time. I don't disagree with, with, with the, the drivers that, you know, it's a bit harsh here and there and, you know, but it's always been that way. You know, racing cars are, are racing cars. You know, if you if you had a racing car that was like a limousine, then the first thing you do is drive over the curbs and put big vertical inputs into it through your spine. Same same deal. You know, you as a racing driver, you will always try to drive something quicker. And if that means you're going to have a bit of discomfort on the way there, well, that's tough. That's what, that's what it's all about. So I think as a team... Each team has to address the situation itself right now. If you look at the sides of the floor on the Mercedes, it's very primitive relative to what Red Bull or Ferrari run. I'm only using Red Bull and Ferrari. Some of the other teams are very good. I'm only using Red Bull and Ferrari as a as a, the two to compare it to because they're up the front there. Um, but it's very primitive. And I would expect it to be that sort of a problem. And it was like the front wing end plates when the front wing end plates were low to the ground. 
you know, when you have a flat foot on it, it was so critical to the, to the right height, so critical to the front wing height, that then the team started putting little tunnels on them. So you get airflow down that tunnel and a vortex. Now that's like a cushion. That means that the, 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 the wing, the lower plate of the wing relative to the ground isn't like a light switch. It's got a cushion of air through there, a bit like a, you know, a bit like a dimmer switch. So it reduces that sensitivity to the ground. And it's the same with the sides of the floor. You have got to make it more sensitive. You will lose a small percentage of the land force, but the better you can manage it, the better it will be for um, consistency. And then you have the, you know, your talented drivers who you're paying many millions, the chance to use their talent to, uh, to, to drag a lap time out of the car. Well, I think this topic is going to run and run, and I'm sure we're going to keep coming back to it in future episodes. So thanks very much, Gary, for your insight. As always, do get your questions in for Gary to answer on future episodes. They can be on porpoising on anything else at all. We want to keep it as broad as possible in terms of tax. So no question too simple or too stupid. There's uh, There are no stupid questions, and Gary certainly doesn't give stupid answers. So make sure you get those in. So thanks very much for your time, and join us next week for more from Gary. You've been listening to the Race F1 Tech Show brought to you by Aramco. Be sure to like, follow or subscribe on your favourite podcast app so you never miss an episode. The Athletic.